This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Onilens Insino, Silja Zuma, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zimbabwe joins the region's Southern African Democratic Community region uh, in protesting against sanctions imposed on some of the top ruling party officials. South Africa's official opposition party continues to hobble from one disaster to the next. In in economics, Zimbabwe's state-owned electricity distributor grapples with drought and aging equipment. And in sport... Hosts South Africa handed an easy group for the 2020 Under-19 Cricket World Cup, scheduled to get underway from January 17th, 2020. Did see a lot happening with regards to South African politics yesterday, and I'm pretty sure you're very keen to find out what is happening over there. Let's cross on over to the world of news. Here is Onilens Insi. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. Botswana's main opposition umbrella for democratic change has cast doubts on the credibility of the country's independent electoral commission. This comes only hours before the announcement of election results. The UDC alleges that there were irregularities in duplication of the voters' role on Wednesday's general elections. UDC spokesperson Mue Dimohasa says the party may consider challenging the outcome of the elections. Some voters rose, did not have con- uh, correct information about the voters. In some instances, there were reports of two versions, if not more, of uh, the voters' role. The voters' registration details were misallocated. Zimbabwe has joined the Southern African Regional Bloc, SADC, in appealing for calm as SADC demonstrates against targeted sanctions against individuals in Zimbabwe. On Thursday, the Zimbabwean government appealed for calm as the main opposition MDC called on protests to coincide with the 25th anti-sanctions protest across the region. Former government minister Jonathan Moyo. In the same vein, we are pleased that our brothers and sisters in the SADC region decided to join us in calling for the unconditional lifting of illegal sanctions which have had a debilitating effect on Zimbabwe and negative knock-on effects on the entire southern African region. As we express our commonly felt desire for the removal of these sanctions against our country, I urge you all to be mindful of maintaining peace, law, and order. The president of Nigeria, Uganda, Sudan, and Sudan rather, have met with their Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit in Sochi. Uganda's Yuri Museveni extolled Russia for its support in building Uganda's army with Russian equipment. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari as well said he was grateful to Russia for helping reduce the terrorists of Boko Haram. 
Putin says Moscow has written off 20 billion U.S. dollars in debt and provided aid to African nations. He did not say over what period, but said Russia has enumerated big projects between itself and Africa. Russia, in the meantime, says the Russia-Africa summit will be held every three years. On the second day of the summit, President South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa spoke on the plenary session in the city of Sochi. Neha Ponia has more. The first Russia-Africa summit has been more an expression of intention on both sides. President Ramaphosa, speaking on the final day, has said that the summit is a recognition of Africa's growing might. This summit signals that Africa has indeed come into its own as a continent. We are a fully-fledged player in the international arena and a continent that is ripe for investment and trade. As the incoming chair of the African Union, President Ramaphosa has also urged Russia to make good on its promises made to African nations without any delay. Lastly, Professor Enongene Marabu Sone of the Nelson Walter Sisulu University in South Africa says the country should be introspective and craft strategies to integrate South Africans and foreign nationals. He was addressing a seminar under the theme xenophobia or criminality and what it holds for South Africa. Sone says it's a shame that blacks can turn against blacks from the same continent. He believes South Africans should be educated about Africanism in a broader context. Channel African News. I'm Onelin Sinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Starting off in Zimbabwe, as uh, they join the regional Southern African Democratic Community region in protesting against sanctions imposed on some of the top ruling party officials, a war of words has ensued in the country. The debate has created a huge rift among uh, citizens who are also asking if the so-called sanctions are indeed affecting the entire nation or only those on targeted restrictions. On Thursday, government appealed for calm as the main opposition called on protests to coincide with the 25th anti-sanctions protests across the region. Simon Muchemo reports from Harare. SADC member states will be joining Zimbabwe in the protest meant to sway the Western countries into lifting the so-called sanction against the country. In Zimbabwe, this call by SADC for member states to set aside the 25th of October and call for the removal of sanctions has in fact created more divisions than unity. While those in the ruling ZANU-PF have been allowed to march against the sanctions in the capital on the 25th of October, human rights defenders and the main opposition MDC have complained of selective application of the law. On Thursday morning, anti-riot police blocked the MDC head offices in a bid to stop the anti-government protests countrywide. Police have also set up numerous roadblocks as a result. Political analysts have condemned government decisions which have been described as sanctions by ZANU-PF against ordinary citizens. The former government minister, Professor Jonathan Moyo, has warned on his Twitter account that the government has imposed sanctions on its own citizens, hence the killing of protesters in August last year and January this year. On one hand, the opposition MDC has threatened to take advantage of the scheduled ZANU-PF march and protest against sanctions imposed by its own government. This has resulted in Oliver Chidao, Minister of State for Harare, to appeal for calm. 
in the same vein, we are pleased that our brothers and sisters in the Sadak region decided to join us in calling for the unconditional lifting of illegal sanctions which have had a debilitating effect on Zimbabwe and negative knock-on effects on the entire southern African region. We thus call upon all patriotic Zimbabweans to come out in their numbers in support of the call for the lifting of these unjustified economic sanctions. As we express our commonly felt desire for the removal of these sanctions against our country, I urge you all to be mindful of maintaining peace, law and order. On one hand, the outspoken traditional chief, Felix Ndiweni, has called on the resignation of President Emerson Mnangagwa, whom he accused of hiding behind the finger of sanctions while he's ruining the country. Our current leader, Emerson Damuza Mnangagwa, has failed to manage our economy and now wants us to believe it is because of sanctions. This logic has no credibility at all. It has no evidence, it has nothing attached to it whatsoever. We have been pulled along an emotional highway that will disappoint us as a people. And so with, with that, we traditional leaders who call ourselves the College of the Chiefs, we are formally asking Emerson Gambuzo Nanagwa to do the honorable thing, to do the honorable thing, and resign with his, administ with his administration. For they have failed the economy, they have failed this nation, they have failed the people, they have bankrupted this country. <coughs> With such a CV in the private sector, an individual will be shown the door to say, you have failed your responsibilities in this employment. I think we've been fair to the current administration, reviewing them from 20 from 24th November 2017 to try and prove their colors, to try and prove their worth. Diweni fell out of favor of the ruling ZANU-PF early this year when he called on Western countries to impose more sanctions against individuals in the ruling party accused of various atrocities. The outspoken chief was briefly jailed for allegedly torching a villager's heart but was later released on bail. As the preparations for the 25th of October anti-sanctions march in the capital gain momentum, so is the fight among its citizens. Even the EU ambassador to Zimbabwe, Timo Elkonen, has warned Zimbabwe as backing at the wrong tree regarding the sanctions imposed on individuals accused of rights abuses in the country. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchema. South African opposition leader Musi Maimani has resigned from the Democratic Alliance Party and Parliament. In a message posted on Twitter this morning, Maimani wrote, It has been the greatest honor to serve the country before he announced that he has resigned from the party and from Parliament. The latest development comes after Maimani announced his resignation as DA leader at the press conference in Bruma, Johannesburg yesterday. DA Federal Chairperson Athol Trollope followed suit by announcing his own resignation. On Monday, Herman Mashaba resigned from his position as mayor of the city of Johannesburg. More from author and political analyst Rolf Matecha. I think that uh, it is catastrophic what uh, the DA is experiencing. 
And I think that uh, they underestimated the backlash from this takeover by Helen Zille and her associates within the organization. They underestimated the ability of people to actually express their disdain with that. I mean, uh, they could not have foreseen Mashaba leaving my money, leaving Trollip, leaving at the same time, and also not just leaving, but raising serious questions about uh, the DA's commitment to progressive politics and multiracial politics. So the party is in a very bad state, and I think for them now the most important thing should be to avoid any further of the contagion and mm. resignation. Mm. Now, of course, we are to see in the next few days whether we do see any more resignations um, happening. We know that um, Stenhazen is no longer um, leading the in parliament as well. So there's a lot of changes that are taking place at this time. What do these latest developments mean, um, uh, Ralph, with regards to the party's big project around adding racial and gender diversity to their leadership structures, which was quite a big mantra of theirs? I mean, what you've seen within the DA in the last few days, it actually says that uh, the commitment to further multiracialism, the commitment by the party to you know, reach out to black constituents, It's on shaky ground now. That commitment seems to be really shaken to its core. There is a real fight within the DA to cast this party in a manner that uh, it actually becomes what they call classical liberalism, almost a right-wing conservative uh, party, if you like. So it's going to be very difficult for them to go back to the black constituents. They're going to have to make their case. They need a way out of this. They need a, a branch management I don't know, maneuver from what they've just experienced. Now, were you surprised at all um, that not only did Helen Zilla come back to contest for leadership within the party, but she, she actually won uh, beating Trollope yet again and seemingly is the person who is really um, putting the spanner or, or rather putting in the work um, with regards to everything that's unfolding at this time? You know, the, the scariest thing is that in a moment such as this, when I thought the DA should position itself to respond to these questions that we are talking about, about how to embrace transformation, politics, and so forth. In a moment such as this, the overwhelming majority of members of the DA love Helen Zille and they want her back. And this is the very same Zille who tweeted not a long time ago that uh, there was some good in colonialism. And she publicly went ahead and defended her statement. So the reality is that it's not just about the leaders here. It's also about the breadth of the membership of the DA. And I think uh, as it is reflected in the representation uh, in people who voted for the Federal Executive Council, people who voted for Helen Ziller. So this is a party that is actually in trouble. They can get the best leader tomorrow. But the question is, what are expectations from the breadth of the DA membership as to where this party ought to go? Now, I mean, just before we let you go, of course, um, things are still unfolding um, with the DA, particularly when it comes to leadership. We know that at this point, um, there is no uh, leader, uh, per se, in the DA. What does that um, a process look like in the next few days in terms of really determining what their next step is um, to getting someone to lead the party? I had reports that uh, the party is actually consulting lawyers. I think Helen Ziller... Yes, was, she did uh, mention uh, yeah. that. Mm. She mentioned that, and, and for me, it actually just says that uh, indeed they are acknowledging they are in uncharted territory. They've never been here before. Uh, this is something that is a precipitated crisis 
uh, way more than they have thought it possible. So I think they'll have to wait to be guided by their lawyers because they're so leaderless at this point in time. They'll have to convene urgent structures. There's no other way. They'll have to convene urgent forums to deal with the way to close the gap. But also I think something on a short to medium, much on a short term also that they need to do in months, in, in a year or so, not a way out of a year period. It is these issues of uh, elective conference. It is also the question of uh, uh, the policy conference. My mind spoke about the co- policy yeah. conference. Yeah. They need it. They need it so much so that they can clear out some of the policy positions. Uh, just before we let you go, there's a lot to discuss around this um, with all the developments that are taking place, Ralph. But um, yeah. yesterday when Maimane did um, resign as DA leader, you know, he had mentioned that he would still stay on as a member of parliament should the party still have him there. And then today, of course, a change of tune, no longer in parliament as well. What do you think that signals? I mean, I think it was quite amicable. Things were quite amicable uh, when he mentioned yesterday that uh, he will still continue to, to serve. For me, it's someone who said that, hey, I might as well be the conversation regarding the next leadership of the DA. But we were surprised as to why is he remaining there? What is he going to do mm, as well? Mm, mm. And hence, this morning, I've seen more of a clarity on that with him. We hear the tweet saying that he's now leaving the party and also resigning his position in parliament. That now is very clear, and it actually says that if he wasn't sure now, he's much closer to mm. maybe maybe forming or joining a new political party because he no longer has affiliation with the DA. And that was author and political analyst Ralph Matecha on the line talking to Zekonomiso. Funding gaps across the African continent may hinder the achievement of the global target for malaria elimination by the year 2030. This is according to a new report issued by the Rollback Malaria Partnership to End Malaria, uh, the conference which was happening in Abuja, Nigeria. The survey titled Malaria Futures for Africa is the first systematic attempt in many years to collate expert African views on malaria policy. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Professor Bob Snow, Professor of Malaria Epidemiology and co-chair of the new study. Professor, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, Good afternoon. Now, Prof, the report indicates that the world is off track to achieving the target of eliminating malaria deaths. How serious is the problem and what changes need to occur in order to achieve the global target for malaria elimination by the year 2030? Well, I think any sense of global elimination by the year 2030 um, is, is um, pie in the sky, really. Uh, I think that there is a lot of talk about global elimination of malaria. Um, these are sort of positions developed in America and Europe um, without much of a voice from Africa. And I think the point of this report was to actually get, a, get an opinion from those who actually have to deliver malaria control on the continent or have to make policies and fund it. Um, and I think the opinions of those that were interviewed are quite clear that you know, it's just not possible to eliminate transmission of malaria in large parts of Africa by the year 2030. Um, What is possible, and that comes out in the report, is aiming to reduce and even try and halve the number of malaria deaths. Um, That is a lot more achievable, and people are a lot more optimistic about that. And Uh, there are caveats, of course. And that target to uh, uh, halve the malaria deaths would still be by the year 2030? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is one of the ambitions of the World Health Organization um, and of many national malaria control programs across Africa is to try and halve the number of deaths. I mean, it's still the case that 90% of all the deaths that occur worldwide occur in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a huge challenge. Um, and we, we are making progress. I mean, it's not all bad news, but things have probably stagnated over the last three or four years. So we've reached a new normal, um, mm-hmm. and that needs to change. So, Professor, when you say that uh, things have stagnated and we've reached a new normal, would you say that when the target was set to eliminate malaria deaths by uh, 2030, that uh, that target was one that was realistic or was it highly optimistic at the time? I I don't think it was realistic. If you're talking about eliminating transmission, when we talk about elimination, that means there is no more parasites circulating anywhere in Africa. Um, and, you know, one in four children walk around with malaria in their blood um, today. Ten years ago, that's today. So 25% of all children are harboring the malaria parasite. So to get rid of that completely by 2030 uh, is just not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who thought that up. I think several people who sit in Seattle thought that it was possible in their lifetime. Um but uh, I don't think that's at all realistic. Of course, it still causes a lot of morbidity and mortality, and there are a lot of children still dying, and they're not getting access to treatment. Unfortunately, it seems like we have lost Professor Bob Snow, a professor of malaria epidemiology and uh, at, the, at the University of Oxford on the line from Nairobi, Kenya. A very big thank you to him for joining us. Uh, I was looking forward to speaking to him about uh, how confident he is about the study, uh, whether or not he feels like it would push forward the new global malaria agenda and what kind of support the World Health Organization and the Rollback Malaria Partnership are providing in efforts towards the elimination of the epidemic in Africa. Africa. And also continuing the discussion with regards to uh, how China is on the way to eliminating malaria, a country of about 2 billion people, which is more than the population of Africa, while Rwanda, South Africa, Botswana and some other countries are making great progress. Uh, and uh, whether or not he thinks there are any lessons to be learned from these countries. We shall try to get him back and uh, continue that conversation if we can. But uh, right now, let's uh, move on. The time is 17.22 Central African time. This is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have.
Channel Africa. Today is the annual commemoration of UN Day, marking the entry into force 74 years ago of the UN Charter. With the ratification of this founding document by the majority of its signatories, including the five permanent members of the Security Council, of which South Africa is currently a member, the United Nations officially came into being 24... uh, came into being... 24th of October has been celebrated as United Nations Day since 1948. For more on the significance of this day, here is Abigail Noko, head of the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights in Southern Africa. Well, I think it's a very important day. That's the first thing that I'll underscore. It marks essentially the entry into force of the United Nations Charter, which was adopted in 1945. It is essentially the founding document of the United Nations, or what the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations has called our shared moral anchor. And in essence, today we commemorate 74 years of this important day, but we are also launching our campaign for the 75th anniversary, which will consist essentially of the largest ever global conversation on the role of international cooperation and will include a discussion essentially with heads of states next year in a General Assembly on the future we want and the UN we need, interestingly. So I think it's really important for us to recall that if you look at the preambular paragraph of the United Nations Charter, it speaks to we, the peoples of the United Nations, and then it goes on to express a number of fundamental principles and values that all nations, both large and small, across the world have, uh, you know, believe that is so fundamentally important to humanity. So this sense of unity and coming together emerged essentially following a scourge of war and is significant because the community of nations basically came together and said, never, never again shall we accept such human calamity. So this is in essence the reason why we're celebrating this day and it's a clarion call to all of us, we the peoples, that we belong to an international community that stands by peace, security, development, and human rights without exception, nor distinction. Now, looking at the activities of the United Nations, and then specifically your office, which is the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights, what is the essential role and activities in South Africa? Well, what I would say is that, first and foremost, we are 17 United Nations agencies, so we're quite a few here in South Africa. And we cover a number of areas and very broad mandates. But essentially what binds us together, if I could say it like that, is the Sustainable Development Goals. And so what you will recall is that in 2015, countries all over the world came together and adopted what is known as Agenda 2030 for the Sustainable Development Goals. And that consists of 17 goals to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all. So the UN in South Africa is essentially seeking to support this country achieve these goals based on its own national development plan and also key principles that are found in the UN Charter, which is ensuring that fundamental human rights are fulfilled and that we leave no one behind, that we're concerned about issues about climate change and accountability. And so the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights is specifically tasked with supporting South Africa by way of support to government, civil society, the South African Human Rights Commission, private sector, and other national institutions. We provide technical support and expertise in seeking to reach such important goals. We also seek to support the government uh, to meet its international human rights obligations, which are also 
rights that are enshrined in South Africa's constitution. But we work very closely with a broad array of stakeholders to, you know, support essentially a global constituency for human rights. You've just mentioned sustainable development goals. I understand that one of the key concepts of this SDGs is leave no one behind. Could you please unpack what this actually means? Well, I think what's important is that the difference between the previous, what was referred to the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals as we know it today or Agenda 2030, is that this concept of leave no one behind is really, really the heartbeat if I can may call it that. And what I think is really vitally important is that we don't reduce the notion of leave no one behind to a slogan or a convenient acronym. What it actually is speaking to is the fact that it is vitally important that we bring people to the center of the development agenda by reaching the fathers first. So in essence, it's about elevating the sustainable development goal agenda to serve those who are most marginalized. So leave no one behind, as I like to call it, is really the heartbeat of the SDGs. It is intended to empower the most discriminated groups. And in that sense, the notion of leave no one behind is affirmation of key principles that are central to human rights, whether that be equality, non-discrimination, participation, and the sense of universality of rights. But leave no one behind, perhaps I should also underscore, is not only about reaching the fathers first. It is also about ensuring that we don't push people behind and that we make it our primary business to serve those populations that are most marginalized first. And that was Abigail Noko, Head of Office of the High Commission for Human Rights in Southern Africa, talking to Janine Kutzer. Building Africa with love. Bujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts, and if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday, and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. And right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Ona Lenzinsi with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Botswana's main opposition umbrella for democratic change casts doubt on the credibility of the country's independent electoral commission. South Africa's ruling ANC party in Gauteng will support Zimbabwe's day of action against economic sanctions. And Russia says the Russian-Africa summit will be held every three years. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Zambia today marks its 55th anniversary of independence. The country is celebrating this year's Independence Day under the theme Our Freedom, Our Country, Our Responsibility. President Edgar Lungu has told his people that the theme is a call to reflection and introspection on the meaning of Zambia's freedom today and beyond. Jane Rabotata reports. Zambia is a diverse nation of more than 70 language dialects and is home to a population of about 16.5 million people. The country's capital is Lusaka. 
The landlocked nation surrounded by seven African countries took its name from the mighty Zambezi River, the fourth longest river in Africa. Zambia holds about 35% of Southern Africa's total natural water resource. It is also home to the spectacular and majestic Victoria Falls, the largest waterfalls in the world. It also has a multitude of mineral resources such as gold, uranium and manganese. As Africa's second largest copper producer after the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia has experienced rapid economic growth over the last decade. It is, however, said to be battling with external debt, with the main external debt categories being multilateral, bilateral, export and supplier credit, as well as commercial debt. The current president, Edgar Lungu, became the sixth president of Zambia in January 2015 after winning a narrow election victory to replace former leader Michael Sata, who died in office. President Lungu gained a new term in August 2016. A former justice and defense minister from the ruling Patriotic Front, Lungu's toughest challenge has been to turn around a slowing economy hit by a slump in copper prices, the country's biggest export. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabotata in Johannesburg. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. In 2015, leaders of all member states of the United Nations adopted a universal agenda that contains the global goals for sustainable development, those uh, otherwise known as SDGs. Countries have since been mobilizing efforts to end all forms of poverty, inequalities and tackle climate change while ensuring that no one is left behind. As uh, we today mark UN Day, which seeks to raise awareness of the United Nations and upcoming missions of the organization, we reflect on the financing of the ambitious SDGs, talking us through the process of mobilizing funds to implement programs geared towards achieving the Agenda 2030 is Dr. Ayodele Odusola, a resident representative of the United Nations Development Program. Well... Financing for development and particularly for the Sustainable Development Goal, it doesn't come from just one source. It comes from multiple sources. The idea now which United Nations Development Program is really preaching is what we call the blended financing. Blended financing shows that uh, the art of achieving sustainable development goes beyond what one stakeholder can achieve. For instance, the government. It goes beyond the power of government. It goes beyond the power of private sector. And neither could the civil society organization say, oh, I want to do it as well. It's a combined effort of all the stakeholders, the critical development stakeholders at the national level that could make it happen. And that's why we call it a kind of blended finance. It includes both resources from the public sector. It includes resources from the private sector. Uh, and again, domestic resources as well as foreign resources. 
when they are effectively combined and effectively utilized, that's where development can be brought to limelight and we can use it to achieve those sustainable development goals. Now, what is the picture like when it comes to the financing of the development goals? I mean, is the global community managing to mobilize the required funds to implement programs that will really help us achieve the SDGs? Well, I would say it's an ongoing process. It's evolving. We are not yet there. But what I can tell you categorically now is that the storyline is changing where all these development stakeholders, including the private sector, including the public institution and including development partners are now coming together to really make sure that the resources that can galvanize development across countries can then be mobilized. I know at the margin of the General Assembly, this is one of the things we do on a regular basis where the United Nations system brings them together. Before, it used to be the preserve of public institutions, government. But now you see private sector coming on board. You have uh, civil society organizations coming on board. And then we're now using the global compact to really mobilize private sector at the country level and at the continental level and even the global level to support the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goal. That's just from one side. Then we have what we call the Sustainable Development Solution Network, which is a combination of academia, private sector, even public institutions and innovation centers to come together to see what are the issues that we need to really use in addressing development. In terms of the funding that is needed for the 2030 Agenda, I'm just wondering, are the figures for us to understand how much do we need and how much has been mobilized thus far? There are a number of issues, a number of debates in terms of what is actually needed to finance sustainable development goals globally. And part of the things uh, which we've gotten, especially from the UN, it's ranging between 2.3 to about $4 trillion annually that would be needed to finance sustainable development goals. But this is not coming from one source. It includes what we currently use across uh, countries in terms of uh, what they use in their annual budget what the private sector invests in terms of uh, business initiative at the country, global and continental level, and at the same time, what households spend in terms of uh, sending their children to school, uh, making sure the family members have access to a basic health system. So it's a combination of what individuals and households business uh, communities as well as what government institutions are putting together. Now, for instance, if you say in Africa, do we really have the resources? I will personally say we do. The only thing is that the resources that are supposed to be used to develop some of these development initiatives in Africa are not used in Africa. For instance, if you look at what is leaving the continent in terms of illicit financial flows, what the countries are losing in terms of uh, giving unnecessary fiscal and tax incentives to international corporations, multinationals. And at the same time, in terms of uh, what we, we lose, in terms of keeping our foreign exchange reserves outside African countries, So these are the resources that could be used to implement the sustainable development goals in Africa. But incidentally, they are outside the continent. So what we are saying is that what can we do to really address this sustainable development financing paradox? Paradox in the sense that what goes out of Africa is far more 
than what comes into Africa to finance development. Now, just to wrap up our conversation, the theme of this year's UN Day commemoration is our planet, our future. I understand that this theme particularly draws attention to climate change, which has been declared as the defining issue of our time. Again, bringing back the issue of funding, what is your assessment of the global response to the threat of climate change? Is there sufficient investment? The Sustainable Development Goal is supposed to be a kind of ambitious agenda for people, planet, and prosperity. And the climate agenda, the UN, considers it to be a critical action that is needed to achieve uh, the Sustainable Development Goals globally. The idea is that uh, the world is not moving at pace that is expected to help us to reduce this carbon emission. The current development in the global community shows that instead of the world coming together to really implement the Paris Accord that all countries agreed to really support the implementation to address the impending catastrophe that is attached to climate change. The most unfortunate part of it is that Africa contributes the least to carbon emission. But when it comes to the issue of impact of uh, climate change in the world, it has the largest burden. So on the basis of this, uh, we are calling the global community to really make sure that we address the climate change as a matter of emergency. And that was Dr. Ayodele Odusola, the resident representative of the United Nations Development Program, on the line talking to Jane Rabutata. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlet to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbera Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. And right now, it's time for us to find out what's happening in the world of economics. Here is Nusitia Zuma. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Sudan is seeking to attract foreign businesses back to the country to help revive its ailing economy. On Wednesday, four U.S. diplomats opened accounts at the Sudanese Bank for the first time in decades. Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in the capital, Khartoum, Alan Thurnburn, says they want to show that Sudan is open for business, that banks, international banks and businesses are welcome back. Sudan has been hit by foreign currency shortages. Zimbabwe state-owned electricity distributor, the Zimbabwe Electricity Transmission and Distribution Company, is grappling with drought and aging equipment, saying it will disconnect mines, farms and other users as it looks to recover $77 million US million in unpaid bills. Zimbabwe is experiencing daily power cuts lasting up to 18 hours after a severe drought reduced water levels at the country's biggest hydro plant, Jane Rabotata reports. ZETDC said in a public notice it was owed 77 million US dollars and it was targeting to recover the money from mining, agriculture, commercial and domestic users. The distributor says defaulters should settle their electricity bills without any further delay to avoid the inconvenience associated with power being disconnected. Earlier this month, Zimbabwe hiked its average electricity tariff by 320% to increase power supplies, angering consumers already grappling with soaring inflation and the country's worst economic crisis in a decade. For Channel Africa News, Jane Rabutata. Commonwealth finance ministers have recognized the potential of technology to improve debt transparency while urging closer collaboration to resolve tax challenges arising from growing digital commerce. Revenues from tax collection are important for maintaining debt at sustainable levels. The ministers have therefore agreed that the Commonwealth should bring its power, collective voice to ongoing discussions at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, particularly on behalf of smaller states. 
Tanzania, through the Ministry of Livestock and Fisheries, has pledged to improve the livestock sector by imp- implementing all recommendations that are incorporated in the report. A committee comprising some retired Ministry of Livestock and Fisheries experts was formed to research and come up with a report on how to improve the livestock sector in the country. The ministry says that the expert report is expected to help the government in improving the sector and that his office is ready to implement it. The Botswana-based retailer Chopis Group has announced it has made significant progress with its lenders and further revealed that its hotly anticipated financial result will be released in two months. In a cautionary note to shareholders that have become a constant feature for the budget grocer, it was disclosed that substantial agreement on the way forward has been reached with lenders. One of the key advantages of companies listing is to improve their credibility to access huge credit lines. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 360.77 Nigerian Nara, 10.72 Botswana Bula, at 102.78 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.20 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.06 Brazilian Real, 63.83 Russian Ruble, 70.58 Indian Rupee, 7.07 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.63 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,492 and platinum at $917 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $60.85 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusikhe Zuma. And now it's time for your latest sport. Here is Net Ochmani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with cricket news. Hosts South Africa have been handed an easy group for the 2020 Under-19 Cricket World Cup, which is scheduled to get underway from January the 17th to February the 9th. Sixteen teams will compete for the title as Poshif Strum, Binoni and Kimberley will be the host cities. The top two teams from each group will advance to the Super League, while the remaining teams feature in the plate championship. South Africa, who are placed in Group D alongside the United Arab Emirates, Canada and Afghanistan. They opened their campaign against Afghanistan on Friday, January the 17th at the Diamond Oval in Kimberley. The SA Under-19 squad for next year's Cricket World Cup will be announced in December. In football news, Manchester United return to Europa League action with a trip to Partizan Belgrade in tonight's Group L, Group L clash. United have enjoyed a terrible start to the 2019-2020 season, though tend in a much improved performance during Sunday's one-all draw in Old Trafford against Liverpool. Even though Oleg Ole Gunnar Solskjaer felt it was two points dropped due to Adam Lallana's late goal. United are winless in their last four outings and even their last win, a Carabao Cup penalty shootout victory over League One, Rochdale had an air of desperation about it.
In rugby news, the former Rugby World Cup winning winger Brian Habana wants to see the ball in the hands of current South African flyers Chelsea Nicolbe and Magazole Mapimpi in Sunday's semi-final against Wales. I think for me, looking at Chesson Kobe and Makazoli Mapimpi, it has really been, I wouldn't say a breath of fresh air, but it's been really enjoyable to see the manner in which they've approached the game. Cheslin, obviously, for me, perfectly fits the description of dynamite comes in small packages. And I've been saying it over the last 18 months, he's been lighting up fields around Europe, the world. Um, it was incredibly nice to see him get you know, that first test start in, in New Zealand last year, seen a score a try in his first game and, and he's just continued building on that. In Europe we've seen him absolutely dominate and be as dazzling as what you know any player in Europe is and However, Habana, who is the giant highest try scorer in a single World Cup, is also a pragmatist and would be happy to see the Springbok stick to their tight physical forwards play if it meant delivering a third title. And then Makazoli Mapimpi, who you know, has just been grafting away in South Africa at the Sharks and Super Rugby, got his opportunity this year and it's incredibly, really nice to see his try scoring rate, to see his work rate, to see all the things that as a player you work towards coming to fruition and long may it continue I, I know there's a certain rugby world cup record tournament try scoring record that stands and as much as it would probably be sad to lose it it would be incredibly special to see uh, you know a south africa or south african or two actually break that record Sunday's opponents, the Wales, have identified Kolbe as the South African danger man, and there have been some calls for head coach Rasi Rasmus to expand the play and involve his white men more. However, Habana, who won the World Cup with South Africa in 2007, stressed that with four successive wins and route to the semi-finals, Erasmus' tactics have so far paid off. So, for me, as a winger, you'd love to get your hands on the ball, and I know both Cheslin and Makazoli, and Sabun Korsi, who... I rate incredibly highly as well. would love to be getting the hands on the ball. But within a team context, I think they understand their roles and responsibilities. And, and they're doing that role and responsibility incredibly well. When they need an opportunity or get an opportunity to finish, they're finishing it off. So I think we'd all love to see the ball get to the wings a lot more. In a World Cup year where the margins are just so fine, do I mind if they don't, but the team is winning? Probably not. <laughs> And finally, mixed martial arts star Conor McGregor today announced he would return to fighting in January, despite announcing his retirement in March. The Irishman, an icon of the UFC, is no stranger to controversy and hit the headlines this year for an attack on an older man in a Dublin bar that was captured in a viral video. McGregor has not fought since being battered into submission by arch-rival Khabib Nurmagomedov. Khabib Nurmagomedov from the Russian Republic of Dagestan in October last year. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest.
And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Should you have any comments on the show, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, and you can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Uyandi Tanda.